This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at BurnsClan. As always, follow at your own risk. And joining me today is the CEO of The Witness, Inc., the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check verified himself. Jamar Tisby, what's going on, brother? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Two time, that's that's a little presumptuous here. Is that wrong for me to do that? Is that breaking decorum? Is somebody at the publishing house gonna look at me like, nah, don't jinx it? Is that what I that, think? Is that what I that think is? by now people know your your penchant for hyperbole, so they may let you get a pass with it. No, I don't want to hear that. Listen, for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time to pass the mic, number one, welcome. Welcome to the show. But here's the interesting thing. I I have receipts, okay? I was calling Jamar a best-selling author long before he became <laughs> one. I have my my faith is well placed, sir, okay? Mm. It is well placed. Mm. Well, obviously y'all, we are here to talk about Jamar's second book, How to Fight Racism. This is a special episode of Pass the Mic. We want you to sit back, relax, and also Use your thumbs to go ahead and pre-order or order the book if you're listening to this after a certain date. And the book comes out when, Jamar? January 5th, 2021, wherever books are sold. Listen, if you have made it to 2021, go ahead and order the book. <laughs> just, <laughs> just get it sent to your, get it sent to your house. There, yes. uh-huh. No caveat. Listen, you deserve this. Okay. You deserve it. You made it. So go ahead and reward yourself by going ahead and ordering this book. But man, I know two books in two years. Obviously, first you wrote The Color of Compromise, which of course is a New York Times bestselling book. Two books in two years. That feels like a lot of work, man. I just want to celebrate what you're doing. And I just want to honor your contribution to this conversation and also your broader contribution to the church, man. That has to feel a little surreal thinking about two books in, in, you know, two to three years or so. It is surreal and and maybe not the wisest choice since I'm still writing a (laughs) dissertation, but I'll never forget you were instrumental in in both of those books, in encouraging me to write them, and in particular with this second book, right? So with the first book, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, oh my goodness, let's just let's do it. And then the second book, knowing how much work that the first one took, not just writing it. No, 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 no. It's a much longer lifespan than that. It's the marketing promotion, it's the book tours, it's the conversations, it's the mm-hmm. podcast, etc. All great stuff, but also on top of other responsibilities and obligations. So I was like really thinking deeply about this. And I called you. Um, My kid was at Taekwondo practice. We were in this big gym. I was just watching Mm. along with the other parents. And I'm like, man, I got this. I got this book idea there. The publisher's ready to go. I just don't know if I should sign because what if it's too much? What if it's too much work? And for those of you who don't know, don't ask Tyler whether you should or shouldn't do something because his default (laughs) is go for it. Dive in head first. Let all the details flesh themselves out later. And that's the exact advice that you gave me. You asked me, um, you know, is this a book you can't not write? And you just talked about, Hmm. you know, sometimes you have this topic or sometimes you have this voice in you that's just like clamoring to get out and you won't really be at peace or at rest until you let that voice speak and have it say. And so that's a lot what this book, How to Fight Racism, felt like. I just felt restless until I put words on a page and got this thing out there. And it was in that conversation that you really helped clarify things for me. And um, I had already talked to my wife at that point. And so basically after that, I was like, "Okay, I guess we're doing this. Man, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I do not remember that that conversation. <laughs> I do not. So, I mean, that sounds like something I would say, but y'all, I'm going to take your word for it because I do not even remember that. Um, but it sounds like me just saying, ah, man, it's going to be fine. Just go for it. Uh, you, you know, just jump, man. You'll land. Like, you'll land somewhere. <laughs> like, you know, that's the type of person that I am. But 
Yep. Man, it's it's really a joy to watch you both publicly and then privately work through these things. So I think my enjoyment and my desire for this book to get out and my encouragement probably is rooted in this reality of you have something to say and you have something legitimate to say. And you started that conversation with The Color of Compromise, New York Times bestselling book, of course. Uh, we talked about it ad nauseum on the podcast. But for those who are unaware, The Color of Compromise is about the American church's complicity in racism. Now, How to Fight Racism, the subtitle is Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between these two books? Because I think that's important for people to understand even before they start reading. It's really important to understand. So these two books complement one another really nicely. I need to clarify for folks, this is the second book, How to Fight Racism. It's not a historical survey. It's not a book about history. It's more a book about the present. And so The Color of Compromise was a historical survey of the American church's complicity in racism uh, that covered you know, roughly from the colonial era on up to the present in order to establish a foundation, in order to answer the question, what went wrong? Um, in other words, in order to really diagnose the problem, diagnose the illness. And until you do that, you can't really talk about prescriptions. You can't really talk about what to do. Uh, so, so the whole first book was that, except for the last chapter. So chapter uh, 11 of The Color of Compromise is called The Fierce Urgency of Now, a phrase that MLK used in, in his famous I Have a Dream speech in 1963. And that chapter laid out the arc of racial justice and also some practical steps, practical actions you could take to fight racism. So the second book, How to Fight Racism, is almost like that chapter expanded into a whole book. So it is a logical next step if you've read The Color of Compromise, or even if you haven't, if you're just somebody who is wondering how to take action, how to be part of the solution, How to Fight Racism is that book for you. And the structure is really important. So I mentioned a second ago, the Arc of Racial Justice. That's an acronym for a model I've been developing. Um, and it stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And so uh, the book is in three parts, uh, Awareness, Relationships, Commitment, and then uh, several chapters on each of those parts so that we have a thorough exploration of what to do. And, and this goes for churches, individuals, institutions and organizations, nonprofit, for-profit, all of that. So it is it is the answer to the question that I get most frequently whenever I talk about race, which is what do we do? And how to fight racism is my book-length response to that question. Yo, so it seems like from what you've been telling me even before you signed this contract, you're tired of hearing that question. Is that true? <laughs> like are you tired of hearing that question? Like what do I do next? Cuz it seems like you operate in such a sphere of research and history that your job is to present the narrative, right? And mm -hmm. so now it seems like always at the end of presenting the narrative, people are like, okay, what do I do with this? Does that question annoy you? It actually does not annoy me because what's behind the question is important. What's behind the question is a lot of things. Number one, this is a question that's likely coming from a person who at least on some level recognizes that race is a persistent problem in the present and not just an issue of the past. So they've at least got that level of understanding that we got to still mm. address racism. And it's not just something that ended in like 1964 with the Civil Rights Act. Um, the other thing behind it is they want to be part of the solution. They, 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 they looking, they're looking back on the history of uh, the United States, um, both in the church and, and in society more broadly, and they don't want to repeat the, the same mistakes of the past. They want to write a new narrative. So they're asking, what do we do? What do I do? What I got sick of <laughs> was on my end, not having a good answer for that, not having a concise answer for that, and uh, feeling like I wasn't being as helpful as I could be. And and really, that's the genesis of the, the arc of racial justice model, because I used to answer that question just by giving this sort of smattering of different answers. Well, you know, watch this documentary, read this book, um, or, you know, get in touch with this person, that kind of a thing. And I thought that's all good, but honestly, you know, what we really need is is a is a framework or a model to help us have a grid to think through these things. And so I hope that 
what How to Fight Racism does is introduces this arc of racial justice to people so that we can keep these components, awareness, relationships, commitment, all in mind in some sense in tension with one another, uh, but it will lead to a more robust form of racial justice in, in my view. Can I stay here just for a second? Because I'm curious, your frustration with not feeling like you had a good enough answer, I think is something that a lot of Black Christians feel, and and maybe even some others who are, you know, from different cultural experiences who are listening into the podcast. Why do you think that's such a hard question for us to answer? Because I get that question a lot. What do we do? What do I do? What's the thing that I do? Sitting across from pastors or ministry leaders or even neighbors, what do I do? Why is that a hard question for us to answer? I think on one level, it's a hard question to answer because the problem is so big. Where do you start? <laughs> Where do you start with mm-hmm. a, an entire society that from you know the 17th century on has been structured around forms of racial oppression? Right. Like, how do you how do you how do you wrap your arms around that? Where do you where do you begin? And also because it's a society wide systemic wide institutional wide problem. So how can I as an individual or even as a small group or a church community be part of a solution to something that's so big when we're so small? I think there's that. But I think also for black people and other people of color, it's like we are the survivors of this victimization. And now you're asking us to give answers to problems we didn't create. (laughs) Like, that's a double burden. We have to survive Mm -hmm. the victimization. But on top of it, Mm -hmm. we got to provide solutions and ways out of of that uh, victimization and that harm when it should be on. It should be the responsibility of the people who have benefited from the oppression to find ways to relieve it. And so it's a it's a it, it can be a tiring question from that perspective. Yeah, that's so good, Jamar. I, I really appreciate you saying that that double burden is very helpful. I know for a lot of people to hear, and they can identify with that as well. The subtitle of the book, which I mentioned earlier, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice, it seems like you're molding together two different thoughts here. So you're molding together, number one, a type of Christianity that hasn't been seen in the complicit Christianity you talk about in Color of Compromise, and then also a push towards a goal pressing towards a mark, to use spiritual language, toward whatever racial justice looks like in these particular categories, areas, cities, neighborhoods, what have you. So with that in mind, kind of merging these two ideas together, is it important for people to be Christian to read this book? Like, How much of understanding does someone have to know and have about the Christian faith and also about, you know, or practicing the Christian faith themselves to be able to benefit from how to fight uh, racism? That's such an important question. Um, First on the main title, I was flabbergasted to find that there was not a book already entitled How to Fight Racism. I mean, yo, (laughs) somebody was swinging and missing on that one, man, swinging and missing. I mean, you're going to find some some things that come close, but nothing exactly those words. And and even the domain, the web domain, howtofightracism.com hadn't been taken yet. So you can go to howtofightracism.com. Order this book from wow. wherever you want to and also get additional resources and things like that. So that just it still boggles my mind <laughs> that we got that main title for the book because I didn't get the 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 title I had proposed for The Color of Compromise. The title I proposed for The Color of Compromise was The Fierce Urgency of Now. And um, number one, it didn't quite fit with the historical theme of the book. But number two, there had been several other books with that title. So so we had to find something else. And I'm, I love that we landed where we did. But anyway. Man, that color compromise title is heat, man. That joint is fire, man. <laughs> so And the binding, I was having a Zoom call with someone. This is a side note for y'all. I was having a Zoom call with someone um, on Friday. And he had the color of compromise. He's like, yeah, I got the color of compromise on my bookshelf. And because it's so bright yellow, I yeah. saw it. I was like, oh, yeah, I see it. Man, it's just, <laughs> Spot that joint. That was God was in that, man. I'm man, telling you. That's good. That's good. I love it. Um, so but the question you asked is, is super important. You know, do you have to be a Christian or to what extent um, can you benefit from the book if you're not Christian? And I would say you can be anyone of any sort of faith tradition or not claim a faith tradition at all and find this book really helpful. Uh, That's for a lot of reasons. Number one, because it is highly practical. 
it prioritizes the practical, as I say in the book. And so uh, these recommendations, what I call them uh, racial justice practices, can really be employed by anyone. It's it's not particular to uh, a, a specific faith tradition. Um, the other thing I'll say is, to the extent that I do talk about religion and Christianity, they are broad themes like dignity and justice and love, which span many different faith traditions and people who don't claim uh, any faith tradition at all. So I think there are they are principles that are accessible to to really anybody who's concerned about truth and and justice and righteousness and and goodness, those kinds of things. I will say um, there are specific applications to churches and congregations, as well as in in the beginning of the book, I sort of lay out the the theological foundations for my approach to racial justice, which is really sort of an extended treatment on the doctrine of the image of God, which comes from Genesis chapter one about all people being created in the image and likeness of God, which gives us inherent worth and inherent value. And, and that sort of um, charts the, the course for how we ought to treat one another across racial and ethnic lines. But again, I think it's really broadly accessible. And even if you're not Christian, understanding from a, a Christian perspective, which many people in the United States claim as their religion, is uh, is really vital to understanding the issue of race and racism in general. So secondarily to that point, you're talking about it from a Christian perspective. Now, I want to talk about it from a cultural perspective. Is it, and you talk about this in the book, and so I think it's important for people, even before they buy it, before they open it up and read one page, is it essential for you like what culture is this written for? Like who is this written for? Like is this written for black folks? Is this written for white folks? Is this written across the board? Because I think it's important for people to understand and kind of set that expectation of of who you were writing to in in this endeavor. So I fundamentally believe that if you are part of the problem, you need to be part of the solution. When it comes to racism and white supremacy in the United States and, and globally, um, white people have benefited from it, whether actively or passively, right? And so, um, and and in particular, white Christians have uh, benefited from it and often uh, promoted it or been complicit with racism and white supremacy. So to that extent, white people need to read this book because white people have been part of the problem. Here's how to be part of the solution. And again, this is not about motives or intentions. This is just about, you know, how the system works where you get sort of advantages and benefits, um, what what one author calls the wages of whiteness. There's cultural currency to being considered white. And this is how you can sort of level the playing field a bit, promote equity, those kinds of things. So to that extent, yes, I I, I, I want <laughs> and, and we really need white people and, and white Christians in particular to read it. But it's, it's not just for white people. I think um, this is a book that will save some time and energy for black people and people of color. Uh, so this is, you know, when your friend or your workplace asks, what do we do? You can hand them how to fight racism instead of, you know, spending countless hours in conversation or meetings or whatever it might be on your own trying to to come up with uh, racial justice practices, well, here's something that acts as a springboard. It's certainly not the final word, but it's something that can get the conversation started, some homework that these folks who are asking you that question can do. And on top of that, I do speak directly to Black people and people of color in the book. And so I tackle topics like, how do you know it's time to leave a predominantly white organization? Um, you know, what are the questions that you ask? What's the filter that you use? I talk about having a community of support, how um, ethnic specific groups for racial and ethnic minorities are not a form of you know, self-segregation as we've experienced segregation on the part of white people. They're, they're a form of empowerment and how we actually need to cultivate those kinds of communities where we don't have to explain our existence or our experience. That's just taken as a given. We're not gaslighted. We, we, we can name what has happened to us amongst people mm -hmm. who understand from an experiential perspective. So there, there are 
racial justice practices and uh, items in there specifically talking to black people and other people of color? Yeah, I sense in that answer this tension of, you know, what you were talking about a little bit earlier with, you know, black people like hearing that question, but then also also hearing the reality of, okay, it's good that you want to do something, but, you know, do we want to carry the double burden of actually doing the work ourselves? Um, we have different work that we need to do, right? Rather than majority culture. But at the same time, we probably are adept leaders at, you know, in right. the struggle for racial justice and the journey toward racial justice. So I think you thread the needle pretty well in the book of, you know, speaking to black people and also understandably like addressing the majority culture systems and and white systems and the systems of whiteness, I guess, which is better um to be said, to under to undermine, you know, some of these, you know, preconceived notions that some of the people who are reading the book might have. So that's well, a very interesting answer. It's interesting to hear you wrestle with that. I, I mean, I've actually learned quite a bit from you on this account because I think what you're really good at and what you're um as president of the witness, a black Christian collective, really leading the collective to do is to be black centered while also navigating that tension of, you know, as the people who have experienced this oppression so acutely, we're also uniquely placed to uh, uniquely positioned to speak to you know solutions or or ways out of that oppression. But like you said, we have we have different work to do, and just your ability to to have those conversations. Like here's the fundamental difference: like we can have these conversations about racial justice and. In many cases, the limits of that conversation are the limits of the most sensitive white person in our mm. network, right? Mm. <laughs> so yes. we, we place the boundary at where we think that most sensitive white person will be offended. And we, we, we push that far and no further. But what you've wow. helped me to do is say, no, 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 that's, that's not what determined the boundary. That's not what determines the pace. W what determines all that is the person most affected, most negatively affected by this, the victim or the mm -hmm. survivor, right? In this case, black people and other people of color. So yeah, I've loved learning that from you. And I hope that comes across in the book. Man, you said that better than I would have ever said it. So thank you for that. I'm gonna take that and dub that clip and uh, play it on loop so I can remember <laughs> what to say next time. Listen, man, let's go a little bit deeper uh, because when you first said and shared with me the arc of racial justice years ago, probably 2013, 2014, or back then it was the arc of racial reconciliation, right? <laughs> Which we want to talk about, of course, too. I have to be honest with you. I tilted my head to the side. I said, eh. Really? Like, that's it? Awareness, relationships, commitment? And over time, you have stayed so true to that. But beyond that, you've expanded it in ways that I think are extremely helpful. And this is kind of a climax of that expansion because the book is structured around those three basic tenets, that arc of racial justice. And so when you were talking about the book and thinking about putting it together, why was the arc so important to keep at the center? And how effective has that been? How effective has it been for you to shift from the arc of racial reconciliation now to the arc of racial justice over the past six, seven years? So there's a couple parts to that question. There's there's the, you know, why this framework? And then, you know, why the shift from racial reconciliation to racial justice? Well, um, I'll start with the second part first. Racial reconciliation to racial justice is, <laughs> for me, a big uh, a result of pondering Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and anti-Black mm -hmm. police brutality, right? Because particularly in Christian and evangelical circles, the emphasis for decades really has been on individual and interpersonal relationships. And that is the way, you know, you build bridges across racial and ethnic lines, you build empathy and understanding and you break down prejudice and all that stuff. And, and then you lead to changed behaviors, which leads to a changed society. Well, we've seen in so many ways that doesn't work. Uh, a lot of times what happens, especially for white people, mm -hmm. is racial reconciliation becomes a way to feel good about themselves for not being racist. Because see, one of my best friends is black, 
or I have friends across racial mm. and ethnic lines, right? But it actually hasn't demanded anything of you. You haven't had to change your budget, where you live, where you send your kids to school, any of those kinds of things. Now, maybe it happens on occasion, but certainly not society-wide on the level that we need it to happen, right? Um, so, so there were deficiencies with the racial reconciliation para paradigm as it has been practiced, right? I think there's a a principle in there that I explain in the book where it can be beneficial, but it, it has to have this justice part. And for me, the justice part was a focus on not just being friends with people who are different. That's great. Don't stop doing that. But we also need to fight against voter suppression and improve health care for uh, low income black people and people of color and, and across the racial and ethnic, ethnic spectrum. Right. So so that was the shift there it was to talk about justice, to really emphasize the fact that racism can be embedded in our everyday practices. Um, the other part, you know, why why this model, why this framework is because on one level, Anything that you can think of as far as what to do about racism, it's going to fall broadly into one of those three categories. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like you want to work on mass incarceration? That's commitment, as I've characterized it. Um, you want to, to start a, a Bible study group uh, that's intentionally interracial and interethnic? That's relationships. You want to um, read the book or watch the documentary? That's building awareness, right? Anything you can name is going to fit under that. And what I think the arc of racial justice is, is helpful in doing is making sure that all of those components stay on the radar. So mm. in a lot of really good racial justice work, um, I see at least one of those components missing or, or highly underemphasized, right? So, you know, I'm uh, 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 an academic, you know, by training. And so I'm going to default to the awareness part, uh, fighting racism. Sure. Let me, let me give you this book, <laughs> yeah. listen to this lecture, yeah. read this article, right. Um, others who are, you know, just highly relational and maybe have just sort of absorbed a philosophy of, well, let's sit down and talk about it. You know, let's talk through the problem. Let's get to know one another. They're going to, they're going to tend toward the relational side. And then we got our activists who, who are doing the Lord's work on on the front lines and, and changing laws and changing policies, but may give, you know, relatively short shrift to these other areas. So I'm like, how do we keep them all in conversation? To me, it's a dynamic dance, you know, um, at, at one point, one partner leads at, and another point, another partner leads, but all of these things are, are on the radar. And I think, you know, like a three-legged stool has a stable foundation to build on that our, our racial justice work needs these components of awareness, relationships, and commitment to have a stable foundation to build racial justice work on top of. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Yeah, that's really helpful, I think, especially for people to hear that it's not linear and it's not sequential and it's not necessarily three steps, right? Um, but it's three simultaneous realities kind of working themselves out. It's a rhythm to that. Um, a dynamic dance. That's another one I'm going to dub and steal for sure. <laughs> for sure. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about this from the concept of personal development, because you talk a little bit about this racial identity development and- mm. I think that's so important because when we talk about race, we talk about it from we talk about it from problems, but we don't talk about it from people. And so we talk about race within the context of, okay, there's this shooting that happened or there's this injustice, but we don't talk about it in the context of, hey, this is how you know who you are. What is racial identity development for those who are unaware? And why is that so important in a conversation about racial justice? So I'll start with 
my own encounter with these racial identity development models. They come out of uh, social psychology, social science circles. I was in college and my sister's several years older than I. And I remember um, she had already graduated college. She was living on her own in an apartment in Chicago. And I went to visit her for a weekend. And I saw this book on her shelf and it was uh, a book I've referenced often by Beverly Daniel Tatum, and it was called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. Essential book. You got to read that one. Essential reading. Thank you so much, Dr. Tatum. Um, and I picked it up because it had such an intriguing title. And she talked about a range of of issues, but she she unpacked this concept of racial identity development. And for me, it was like a light came on. What this framework did was put words to what I was experiencing as a young black college student on an overwhelmingly white campus and what I was going through, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so uh, racial identity development, um, models of it originated with uh, a guy named Cross, and uh, he originally called it the, the 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 theory of nigrescence or the model of nigrescence, in other words, the process of becoming a Negro or Black. And uh, this was in the early 70s. Since then, uh, researchers have built on it, adapted it, and I include it in the book because it is really helpful to understand that your own racial awareness is not static. It's moving. It's progressing or not progressing. And the things that you're thinking about and experiencing, it, it, it can all be captured in one of these stages. So, for instance, um, people of any race or ethnicity typically have some sort of confrontation that awakens them to the issue of race in a new way. Typically, mm -hmm. it's a negative encounter that um, wakes you up to the fact that, that race is not only salient, but it, ha it, it, is, it is a problem. Um, it is a big problem. And so, you know, for many of us, I mentioned Ferguson and, and Black Lives Matter. Uh, for, for folks in another generation, it could be the L.A. uprisings after, um, you know, uh, Rodney King's, the people who beat Rodney King were, were not convicted. It could be Trayvon Martin. It could be it could be an interpersonal reaction. Somebody calls you the N word or, you know, you're in an interracial relationship and you, you get all kinds of, of heat for that. So, you know, the racial identity development model it talks about these stages of racial identity development where you, you go from being less aware and sort of adopting the status quo of the culture to being more aware. And, and really that, that, that key word is identity because you begin to have a more confident grasp of your own racial and ethnic identity. And at the highest levels, you're able to hold that and center that but also you're able to maneuver in environments where you might be the minority or you could be the majority and you're not mad about it. You don't have a chip on your shoulder about it, but you are confident and self-assured and you can talk about it with anyone and you're not going to back down. And I just think it's so helpful for all of us to understand and try to locate ourselves on this, on this model. Yeah. And kind of, I guess, tied to that is not just racial identity, but then also you talk about being racially homogenous and like racially homogenous settings and things of that nature, which is, is funny because I think, uh, you know, a lot of us, especially from church settings, we, we understand this in a church, you know, context where people are talking about churches and the homogeneous unit, unit principle and all these other things. And so when you talk about these homogenous settings, like how are you, how are you approaching fighting racism through identification? identifying yourself and identifying the system that is around you and that the system that you're within. Because I think that's so important for people to understand like that the book is so much about identifying at first and then stepping into, stepping out of, and then stepping into a commitment to the journey toward racial justice. So a critical part of racial identity development is, is the stage called immersion. Where, where, where you immerse yourself in people who are similar to you and, and from your own culture. Now, this is um, 
geared toward black people and, and people of color, where you are in a quantitative minority, um, but you're raised in a white supremacist society. So it's vital in terms of our racial identity development that we immerse ourselves in our own culture um, or cultures, right? Because what that does is, A, it teaches you things that the dominant culture never taught you, right? So with the color of compromise, I get so many people who say, Black people, who say, I never learned this history. And you're right. This is not something that is going to be taught in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, schools that are predominantly white or textbooks that are written by, you know, white people or white publishing companies, et cetera. Um, but but it's also a chance not just to sort of. So this is um, in in the book when I when I list the chart, this is the black is beautiful stage. This is the you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're growing our afros out and wearing dashiki stage. <laughs> And and what you what I mean, I'm in that stage right now. I'm in the lock, the braids, everything, man. Come on, you know. And and you know, it's 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 not really a stage. This is this is sort of the beginning of of when we do that because you know we can do that for the rest of our lives, right? But but what there comes a point when we really dive into our history and our culture and our vernacular, and we learn to view ourselves more positively in the face of a society and a culture that constantly chips away at our integrity and our dignity in all kinds of ways, big and small. So this immersion phase, this immersion stage is really important. And what it does is it actually strengthens you, it empowers you to go out. So you go in to go out, you 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 gather so you can scatter for a t for for a time, and then you come back and you get reached. It's almost like going to church, <laughs> you know. Uh, it, it, it should be such that we we say, you know, if I can just get to Sunday, then I I can be around my community, my people. I can get mm -hmm. recharged, and then I can go back out for the for the next week and and be in the world and be salt and light and all of that good stuff and then i come back and gather with my community to find strength and in similar ways um racially and and ethnically specific groups do that for minorities is different for white people who are in the majority when you stay in your racially homogenous group that breeds racism and bigotry and prejudice and all kinds of things. So uh, you need to go in in those groups and be disruptive um, as you're learning about people of other races and ethnicities. Yeah, man. You know, this kind of leads into relationships. And I think it's so important to ask this question because I'm very curious. How did you approach talking about relationships without the same tired racial reconciliation rhetoric? Because <laughs> I think we're tired of the cliches and the platitudes you know, we're all one at the foot of the cross, come together, like just hold hands. Like, man, if, if we just, we just need to listen to each other. Like we're all sick of that. And how did you write about relationships without slipping into that very tired, like <laughs> racial reconciliation rhetoric that I think the church like propagates a lot of? Yes. So I feel you on that. And look, I was waving the racial reconciliation flag for some years because I really, bought into this idea that if we could have, you know, multiracial and multiethnic churches, if we could integrate, you know, this organization or that institution, then that would be, you know, the solution to not everything, but a lot of our issues. Well, what I explain in the book is that that relies on a, on a fundamentally flawed presumption, which is that the main problem of racism is separation, and therefore the main solution is integration and to come together. Um, really, if you look at U.S. history, we, we, we really never achieved integration. We, we have desegregation, <laughs> which is taking down, you know, the legal and strict barriers to participation. Mm -hmm. But it's not true mm -hmm. integration in the sense that, you know, it, it, it's equitable and we have an equal seat at the table and, and, and our voices are heard and respected and, and there's change that comes about as a result of that. So I just tackle that head on in the book. I say, um, you know, reconciliation is a Bible word. It's not a word that we need to give up on or completely jettison, but so much of this racial justice work is a, is a recovery and a reclaiming. 
There's a recovery and a reclaiming of our identities. And there's also a recovery and a reclaiming of language, of words, and how they've been used or misused. Um, now, I still fall on, you know, the, the side of saying, you know, the arc of racial justice, not racial reconciliation. But, but what I try to say is that even though it's been misused and mis misapplied, there's still in, in its sort of pure form, um, a kernel there that we need to latch on to. I just, it doesn't work to work for racial justice without relationships with those you consider other. It doesn't. What, what I've often said mm -hmm. is what we need is priestly proximity, priestly proximity. And so if you think of, um, a, a pastor or a church leader or, or any kind of religious leader, right? Uh, or even, you know, a, a boss in a company, whatever it might be, they are more effective if they know the people they're serving, if they know the people they're working with. Um, it's those folks whose doors always closed, who are distant and detached, who are off in their own world, who then begin to sort of develop ideas about what's good, what's bad, what works, what doesn't work, that, that really doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have any basis in reality, right? So I'm very concerned that um, even people promoting racial justice, if we're not somehow in community with people who are different. And I'm not saying toxic community. Please don't hear me say that. I am not saying that as black people and people of color, we need to subject ourselves to trolling, to, you know, obstinance, to gaslighting. That's not what I'm saying. But for people of any race or ethnicity, there is benefit in cultivating community that 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 is diverse, right? And so I, mm -hmm. I try to tackle that. I try to dismantle I try to dismantle some of those misconceptions about racial reconciliation and say why is why it hasn't worked. I I I point to um, mm -hmm. Shaniqua Shaniqua Walker Barnes' work. I bring the voices of my people. She does a wonderful job analyzing what went yes. wrong with white evangelical racial reconciliation and um, the the very male centric aspect of racial reconciliation because it did almost nothing for black women, right? Um, so I build on work like that to try to say, you know, how racial reconciliation has gone wrong. And then I try to propose some more fruitful ways forward. Uh, and, and there are some principles in there. Like I say, um, humility, not utility. Uh, so, so every chapter has racial justice practices, but there are also um, mm -hmm. a few essential understandings. And one of the essential understandings in relationships is uh, humility, not utility, meaning uh, you don't get into a relationship with someone just for what you get out of it. So if you're a white person, you don't get into a relationship or a friendship with a black mm. person just to learn about black culture, just to learn what black people think. Right? You get into a relationship or a friendship with that person because of who they are, because uh, uh, they have inherent dignity and worth, and it's 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 worthwhile for you to get to know this person. And And the litmus test is, if you never talked about race, would you still be friends with this person? Right. Hmm. That lets you know, Oof. is it humility Whoa. that you really want to learn and be in relationship with this person? Or is it utility? Just what I can get out of them uh, on this particular topic. That's a heavy question that people need to sit with that. <laughs> That's a heavy question because I think it will cause a lot of us to reevaluate our relationships. Like, I think even in this justice space. Right. Like, you know, I understand co collaboration and co belligerency and all these other things. But it's like, man, like. At a certain point, like, are we friends beyond this? I think that's a really, a really interesting uh, question. Man, you say in the book, um, just as we should not pursue certain solutions simply because they are new, we should not preserve patterns simply because they are familiar. Mm. I think it's actually one of the most powerful quotes of the book. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important for us to disrupt this and why it's so important for people to come together to disrupt these familiar patterns? even if it costs us. <laughs> this is hilarious because this is a section I asked you about. I, I think I texted you and I was like, I'm thinking about putting this section in about, you know, conservatism 
and I don't know if I should do it. And you're like, yeah, man, go for it. <laughs> so it ended up in the nah, man, look, I think you're capping on this. You got to be capping on some of these stories, bro. I promise <laughs> you. I don't, I, don't re- I do not remember that conversation. I can pull I'm up the text. Friends. I can pull up the receipt. I promise you. Um, oh, man, he got receipts, man. He has, he has a story in True Blue. True Blue is story. <laughs> but I can tell you exactly where that falls. It, 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 it comes in the section right as I'm about to talk about some some more of the sort of policy level, legal, systemic ways to address racial justice. And I know from 10 years of doing this publicly, that's the rub for a lot of people, especially those who who, who lean more conservative politically and socially, is these policy solutions, right? So I wanted to say from the jump, listen, I understand, you know, sort of from a purely philosophical conservative perspective that they don't just want to pursue change for change's sake. They want to sit down and evaluate, is this really good? They don't want to throw away traditions or institutions um, that have been around, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's that's pie in the sky conservatism on the ground. It, it looks a lot different. But I wanted to at least address that and say, you know, yeah, sure, there's some truth to that. You don't want to do something new just because it's new. But at the same time, you don't want to keep doing something just because it's what we've always done. And that's particularly salient when it comes to race in the United States. And this is where a book like The Color of Compromise is helpful because no matter where you go in the country, no matter how far back you go, no matter what sector of society, church, politics, economics, racism is there. And so to truly move forward on the journey toward racial justice, we're going to have to be, quote unquote, progressive. And that I mean as, as, a, as a contradistinction to conservative, right? And, uh, and I'm not talking about politically. I'm talking about are, are we going to progress in terms of the way we structure the laws and policies in our society? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to conserve what's been there, which is actually very racially unequal? And so I just wanted to address that directly to folks. Like if you if you lean conservative, I get it. I, I've heard lots of the objections. But if you look at our tradition in the United States when it comes to race, what is there to conserve? <laughs> right, right. That's the question that people don't want to answer. Like, what are we conserving here? I mean, yeah, I mean, like, like, what do you want to keep around when it comes to how we've addressed issues of race and white supremacy in our country? And so I hope what that does is at least, you know, opens the door a little bit for people to consider uh, policy changes and systemic changes that uh, may be labeled in the public discourse as progressive or liberal. Um, but when we zoom out and, and say, you know, what are we conserving when it comes to race in this country? Um, maybe maybe that helps you view it from a different perspective. So you give a lot of these racial justice practices like throughout the book and in a lot of different ways, places where people can get involved. What do you hope that people do with those racial justice practices? I want to talk about a few of them. But before that, what do you hope people do with them? Because I think it's different it's different for people to say, I think it's too simplistic for people to say, use the racial justice practices. Just go and do them. What do you hope people do with them in terms of their own heart versus leading a cause outside of their own life, their own home? What's your what's your overarching desire? Because I think that determines how people approach them, not as a checklist or to-do list, but as a partnership in the journey. Yeah. Great question. I think it's vital to understand that that a lot of this is heart work uh, for for people black or white or across the racial and ethnic spectrum. A lot of this is the work of unearthing, recovering, refining our own identity and doing it consciously. Right. So so I include a lot about self reflection introspection, racial identity development, writing your racial autobiography, things like that. So that is vital and important work. But I do hope people take action. So what I'm hoping is people actually sit down and say, okay, if I'm serious about this, what am I actually going to do? And a great way to do that is to look at each chapter or even each just just each section you know awareness relationship commitment and pick something that's easy to do something 
that is going to require some restructuring and commitment to do, and then something that's a stretch, something that feels kind of audacious to do. Um, so, you know, something easy to do might be something you're already doing. Oh, I'm in a, I'm in a book study that, that talks about race. So I'm going to keep doing that and committing to that. Um, uh, uh, m something that might require a little bit more commitment is uh, I'm going to start attending city council meetings once a month to see what's really happening in my community um, with the hopes of, you know, somehow being part of, of positive, the positive good in my community. A stretch goal might be like, you know, lobbying for your company or your organization to um, pay reparations or to participate in something like that. It could be, uh, it could be, uh, any number of things like, um, you know, leaving a particular community or entering a particular community. It could be, you know, changing the school your kids go to those kinds of things. So my point is do some things that you know you can do because that is going to keep you on the path. It's going to keep you taking steps, but also do some things that normally you wouldn't consider doing. Things that are going to stretch you and push you because that's where the growth is. I mean, it's just like working out, right? Like we can, we can be jogging and we can have, you know, a certain pace that's comfortable and we know we mm -hmm. can sustain. And that's good because we're still moving, right? But at the same time, you know, when are you going to push? When are you going to, when are you going to, uh, stretch yourself to a limit that you didn't think you could reach before because that's how you get faster. That's how you get stronger. And it's similar on this journey toward racial justice. What was the most audacious racial justice practice that you wrote down? The one that you you questioned whether or not you're going to put it in the book. That's what I, I want to know that. Like, what was the one thing that you were like, uh, man, that's kind of ambitious. Like, that's a little audacious for even me in this idea of how to fight racism. <laughs> uh, hard to name just one. Um, I think they probably come in the third section of the book on, on in the commitment section on the, on the sort of policy level kinds of things. Uh, it, it, reparations is a big one, not because I think it's like, it's hard for me to grasp. I think it's just a really uphill battle in our nation and in the church, right? Like if you even say that word, it's a trigger word for a lot of people who who automatically and reflexively resist it. Um, so so that's a big one. Um, there were some other big ones like schools are a really big deal. Like our schools are hyper yeah. <laughs> hyper segregated. Yes. Um, in yes. some ways, even more segregated. I was I was I was um, I was looking at some old pictures of when I was growing up. And my siblings, who are both older than I, were growing up. And I was remarking at how integrated, like, our kindergarten class pictures and our third and fourth grade, you know, birthday parties were. It was black people. It was white people. It was people of uh, Latino descent and Asian descent. I'm like, this was in school. These were in public school. When did this change? How did we, like, it's remarkable to me now to see so many shades and so many ethnicities um, in our schools. Uh, because we've been so hyper segregated. And I think, you know, something radical and audacious for anyone is to make decisions about schooling, whether your own or or especially that of your kids, and actually take racial justice as a priority. Because that's going to lead you to some very different places. So that's pretty audacious to me. Hmm. Yeah, that that was one that I kind of I thought was very interesting. And I was wondering if that was one you would think was the most audacious. So I'm glad you mentioned it. What would you say to the people who look at all these practices and say, it doesn't go far enough? Like, what would you say to the people who are like, nah, man, it's, it needs to be even more radical than this? <laughs> I would say, I would probably agree with you on, on certain points. Um, this was a difficult book to write in that there's so much subject level expertise that's required, right? Like you can write a whole book on ways to build awareness alone. You can write a whole book on ways to build uh, healthy relationships across racial and ethnic lines and similar on the policy level, right? So um, I'm already thinking about like 
revisions and rewrites and updates. It's it's a book that by its very nature of recommending practical steps or practical actions you can take, it's ever evolving because we're always learning more. The context is always changing. And so what may seem to be pushing the edges now, the window can shift in a very short amount of time. I mean, just think about Think about 2020, mm-hmm. right? Like, like we're talking about Juneteenth. We there. We're, we're talking about having a federal. There was a federal hearing on reparations. We're talking about defund the police, right? Even five years ago, those concepts would have been way too radical <laughs> for mm-hmm. for you know national dialogue. Um, but here we are, and so I have no doubt that in the next couple of years, um, you know, the window will shift again, and 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 even what seems to be pushing the boundaries now in the book uh, will be more commonplace. And so it's ever shifting, ever evolving. Um, and I did my best to to not be timid and not let you know the sensitive, the most sensitive person in the room dictate uh, the solutions I recommended. Yeah, man. I, I kind of want to land the plane here because I think it's very important to to ask this question. We talk about racism and fighting it. There's a cost involved. And there is a immense, sometimes uh, overwhelming sense of hopelessness. Uh, you know, we talk about this often behind closed doors, the the banality of racism to the point where you have to, we have all these dreams and plans and desires and we're talking about fighting it on a systemic level, and we still have to fight it on a on a micro level, like in our own lives, and our own interactions, and in our own situations. And so, my question, man, is how do we deal with the cost of fighting racism? Like, how do we deal with the cost of journeying journeying towards racial justice? Like, what do we do, and how do we handle like the 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 wearing down of the oppressive like racist uh, system within our country? So the journey is lifelong. And the question is, how do you stay on this path for years, for decades, without burning out, without getting cynical, you know, all those kinds of things, to which I always respond in in two ways. Number one, I'm inspired by the ancestors. And so this is really where the study of history has benefited me so much is that I learn about people like Fannie Lou Hamer and Medgar Evers and Ida B. Wells and and so many others whose whose names aren't as famous or popular. But I look to their example, how they struggled, how they endured, what they wrote, what they changed. And, you know, the, it inspires me on two levels, like wow, how incredibly courageous of these people. Um, and if they were, if they did it, maybe I can too. They set an example for us to follow. But on another level is like, how can I not continue their struggle? Um, how, can I, how can I rest mm-hmm. content mm-hmm. when they gave up and sacrificed so much so that I could be where I am? And so the struggle continues, that journey continues as um, a way to honor our ancestors, right? The other way... I respond to that question is it's it's so much about community. Uh, the analogy that we often talk about on past the mic is you know the quiet exodus of black people from predominantly white churches mainly, but but any predominantly white institution really. And then we we talk about after the quiet exodus, there's this wilderness wandering. We're not at the promised land yet. We have not mm-hmm. made it to our destination. And so, what do you do in the meantime? How do you survive in the desert? It's through community. It's through the people you meet along the way. And that's the beautiful thing about a journey is you're going to run into people who you don't know, who you would never otherwise encounter, but because they're on the same journey as you are, you begin to walk together. And at different points along the path, uh, one or you or the other is going to need support. And that community uh, is going to be the arms around you to, to, to pick you up when you fall, to, to, to hold you by the arm when you're stumbling. And you're going to be that for someone else too at different points. And so it's critical that, that we don't go on this journey alone, that, that we look for opportunities to connect with others so that we can share the journey with them and together we can continue on this path. 
Well, Jamar, man, you you wrote this book. You did it. I don't know if that story was true, but I'm glad I told you to go <laughs> ahead and write it. I think it's going to help a lot of people, man. I think it's going to continue the conversation. A couple of people have talked about color compromise and how to fight racism as as two shots of a vaccine or you know shot chaser type of <laughs> type of thing. And uh, I think it's right, man. I think people who want to continue this journey, which should be all of us, um, which is why I think everybody would benefit from reading it. The people who want to continue and have a genuine desire to continue this journey will be greatly benefited by your work. And I believe also, man, you know, we talk a lot about history in your work, but I think history is going to look very favorably on how you pushed the church in this moment and how you pushed the broader community as well. Uh, to truly pursue that journey toward racial justice. So well done, brother. We proud of you over here. Hey, I appreciate that. I receive it. Great questions. And uh, you can go to howtofightracism.com to find out more. Thank you for for the time. If they don't get the book, man, we kicking them out. We kicking you out. <laughs> it's mandatory. 100% mandatory. Got to buy the book. We're no, all I'm on kidding, a journey. But We're we love you. <laughs> <laughs> we all on that journey. Yep, yep. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.